What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I'm joined by a very special guest, Blake Millard. Now, we start up by chopping it up a little bit about Chicago sports, Bears, Cubs, and we come to the conclusion Justin Fields is the guy. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer in the making. Uh, we're just very blessed to have a quarterback in Chicago. So as Bears fans, we always love an opportunity to talk about it just a little bit. Uh, so we get into that, his background, the overall state of the economy, current cycle, CPI and other macro events that just recently happened, our initial take from them, and much, much more. Please, I ask you fans of Green Candle, fans of the Macro Insights Podcast, please, please, please like, share, and subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Check out the YouTube and everything I got going on and help the show grow. Share it with friends, family, and what have you. Because the best thing we can do during this time is share as much knowledge as we have got. So I hope that I'm providing a great, great insights for you guys and bringing on excellent guests. And last but not least, this is not financial advice, should never be taken as financial advice. It should be used or it should be understood that these are strictly my opinions and the opinions of the guest, and that is being used for entertainment purposes only. Now, let's get into the show. Whoosh. What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, and I have a very special guest. We've connected over Twitter recently, so I'd like to welcome into the podcast is Blake Millard. Blake, how you doing today, man? Doing well. What's going on, Brandon? Good, good, good. Uh, yeah, everything's uh, going well on this end as well. I'm glad you're here now. You're feeling a little bit better. You were kind of under the weather last week, so we had to reschedule. But uh, why don't we uh, you know, kind of bring it back and tell the audience a little bit about yourself and uh, your experience and you know, what got you here today? Yeah, sure. Uh, so thanks uh, for having me as a guest. Uh, just backing up a little bit. I was born and raised in Chicago, spent my formative there, uh, years there, went to the University of Michigan, so I'm a big football fan. It's nice to see them back in the college football playoff after a, uh, a bruising that we took last year at the hands of Georgia. So um, interesting to see because we're actually on the opposite side of the bracket, which either if we win, we would play a rematch against Georgia, which would be exciting. Or we could play Ohio State, which is a uh, a big I know regional matchup, but I think it's pretty much a, a one of the lar- big oldest, most renowned rivalries in all of college football, no matter where you are. So I think a Michigan Ohio State final would also be uh, huge for TV ratings and fans alike. So that's exciting in a couple of weeks. But um, yeah, so after Michigan, I went to. Uh, Chicago to start. I graduated right into the global financial crisis, which was rather interesting timing. So I graduated in 2007, and at that time, markets were really starting to, um, you know, crumble as the housing market was in all sorts of bad shape. So uh, interesting story with one of my first firms that I worked for at the Chicago Board of Trade, uh, but. Eventually, I made my way out to the D.C., Maryland, Virginia areas, like as we like to call it, the DMV, and I've been there ever since, which um, 
it was a surprise. I actually only thought I was going to move into the area for a couple of years and then move back to Chicago because I just love the uh, Chicagoland area. But, you know, with careers and relationships, uh, I ended up meeting my future wife, um, just ended up staying in the area. So now I live uh, in Annapolis, Maryland with my wife, and we have four little kids. So um, had been with UBS Private Wealth for close to 10 years. I uh, worked on two separate private wealth teams, very high-performing teams in the in the company. I think UBS is like six or 7,000 advisors. The two teams I worked on were both inside the top 100. So um, great experience learning how to manage portfolios, talk to clients, do manager due diligence, understand client reporting. Uh, so that was just a wonderful transition to where I am now, which is a, uh, Sandbox Financial Partners. We're based out of Bethesda. We're a uh, registered investment advisor, and we have a number of different advisors up and down the East Coast. I was brought in last summer, so the summer of 2021. Uh, I would actually fall under the great resignation, if we all know what that is. Um, and I was brought in as the director of investments to essentially be the central hub for all of our advisors for trading, reporting, manager decisions, uh, client conversations, allowing some level of scalability to um, really centralize the whole investment management process and allow our advisors to focus more on what they do best, which is building relationships and finding new relationships while I manage more of the money and uh, sit behind closed doors. And um, that's, that's me in a nutshell. All right, Blake, before we get into all the financial stuff, I got to ask you two questions because I'm also, I'm, I was born in Chicago. So Cubs or Sox? Cubs. Which, no okay, good call. Good call. And then is Justin Fields the guy? Because I know you're a Michigan guy, but, and he went to Ohio State, but what do you think? Justin Fields the real deal or not? Yeah, it's, it's really hard to cheer for an Ohio State quarterback for the Bears. But, um, you know, I've kind of gone back and forth on this one. He definitely has just electric speed, visibility downfield. You can really see why he was such a highly recruited quarterback out of, college and then, or out of high school and then into college, where he had tremendous success there as well. I just I think I'm still of the old adage where pocket passers are where you build, you know, durable year-after-year year success in the NFL. Uh, I mean, I just look at some of these more focused, uh, running-centric, more running-focused quarterbacks with the injuries that they uh, accumulate throughout the years. So I, I'm a bit nervous as to his longevity if he continues to sort of run first, you know, pass second, sort of that mentality. Uh, but there's no denying he's an electric quarterback. He's got game-breaking speed. He can definitely change the outcome of a game in just a couple plays, which is really how NFL games are always decided. Is Really, the game comes down to four or five key plays, and he's a, a, a game-breaker. So it'll be interesting to see how things turn out. It's... Uh, you know, his, his star is very bright at the moment. If they can put together a, a solid line around him and uh, the team sort of coalesces, 
who knows? We could actually see a uh, you know a perennial franchise quarterback, which is something the Bears have really never had since I've been born. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I always tell people, you know, I've seen a lot of bad quarterback play on the Bears, and I don't think Justin Fields is one of them. So, um, yeah, I'm hopeful I as well. Remember the, I, I remember just growing up as a kid, we would always be playing the Packers, and it was almost like a running joke where on one side of the screen you would have, the you know, the Packers starting quarterbacks over, like, the last 20 years. And there were two names listed. And then on the other side of the screen you'd have all – this long laundry list of all the Chicago Bears quarterbacks that had played throughout the years. And, I mean, you would just keep scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. So it's, it's playing the Bears for, for decades, what seems at this point. So if, if we can finally land on a quarterback that can actually be there for a number of years and you can build around, it would be wonderful. But um, as, you, as you know, that's something that, we can't ever seem to get right, and my thing is you got to keep drafting a quarterback until you finally do get it right. Yeah, exactly. So hopefully uh, Fields is the guy, and, and we don't have to worry about this too much because we do have a lot of other things going around, especially in the financial markets. So, But you, you brought it up. You kind of started your career in you know the 2008 um, you know, crisis crash. So that's a really interesting sp uh, spot to start, especially in the financial world. So, you know, what were some of the big lessons you learned there? And, you know, I mean, just kind of being thrown into the fire. What was that entire experience like, um, you know, just kind of getting started and getting your feet wet, but, you know, having a bunch of turmoil in the market? Sure. Uh, you know, oftentimes the best way to learn is just trial by fire, sticking your feet right, right where it's hottest. And you'll make a lot of mistakes, you'll ask probably a lot of silly questions, but, uh, you know, sometimes when you sit more in the wings, you're a little bit more protected, you might not formulate like a strong opinion, you might not be involved in those day-to-day -day conversations that carry weight. Uh, so I found just it to be meaningful life long experience to get thrown right into that type of environment. Now, at the time, I was just obviously low man on the totem pole. I was just out of college, you know, didn't have that experience to really add any sort of value at that moment. But, um, you know, it was, it was really eye-opening just to see markets in turmoil, market, bear markets, major corrections, recessions, those are where you really sort of truly understand how markets work, how investor sentiment plays into things, human emotion. Um, I mean, you can almost throw out the fundamentals at that point when you just have cascading liquids. Um, we saw try you know blue blood names Lehman go down their Stearns go down you saw AIG get you know handheld into conservatorship same with uh, uh, Freddie and Fannie Mac so it's just you know one domino after another one scary headline after another and I think just the whole experience that I took from that would be again just just learning trial by fire it's um, you know just getting right to it manning the phones, manning questions, uh, doing research on why something is doing what it's doing. Um, you just, 
you just learn right there real quick. It's like uh, drinking from a fire hydrant. You don't seem to always know what's going on or able to connect the dots at that point, but uh, just valuable experience down the road. Yeah, and I and I can imagine, but it, it's interesting because you said you know you could kind of I guess throw out the fundamentals, um, and I kind of have a theory about that in this current cycle. But it seemed like you know the, you you brought up that throw away the fundamentals, and then you seem it seems like you know value investing pr- principles for the past you know decade or so really haven't been doing well, and it's a lot of these you know growth companies with a lot of crazy PE ratios, and you know all the kind of like value investing you know, metrics and whatnot were just absolutely insane. And you could just throw a dart at the wall, hit uh, some random ticker, and that stock was going up. So, you know, what was, I guess, investing in that kind of environment as well, you know, because it seems like the, I guess, maybe the the generic fundamentals that, you know, the the Ben Graham kind of stuff and, and the uh, value investing principles haven't really been, you know, I guess, at the forefront of investing, at least, you know, it seems you know, I guess since your career has kind of started, would you kind of agree with that opinion? And, you know, what kind of, uh, I guess, you know, metrics did you see uh, as, um, you know, that kind of helped you get gain some more success, I guess, through this like decade of, of growth? Yeah, so it's been interesting. The sort of invisible hand of the market for the last 10 odd years. And then, of course, again, here post-pandemic, which would be, you know, the Federal Reserve and the FOMC, which sets policy, um, you know, through their two main tools, which would be setting interest rate policy and then using their balance sheet to either, um, you know, expand or contract based on liquidity in the system. So, uh, you know, it's interesting from, really the market bottom in March of 2009 all the way through really pretty much when COVID hit, we just saw unprecedented level of monetary and fiscal support for the market. And what you ended up seeing was one of, if not the strongest bull markets in all of history. It's just, you know, the the stats that you can pull from whatever you're looking at and what time horizon, but, the, you know, the Kager on the S&P was just uh, remarkable. And I think when, you're, when your backdrop is essentially a falling interest rate environment and, um, you know, at that time coming out of the global financial crisis where there was just still so much fear and uncertainty over the structural balance of the system, uh, getting the housing market back in check after, you know, fraud and craziness that we were seeing, uh, you know, that, that, that perfect cocktail was set where it's let's, let's put as much liquidity into the system as we can, let's keep lowering rates. And what we saw was, um, you know, the market really take off. And some of that was also fueled, of course, by tech where it really was in the right place at the right time. Uh, we saw tremendous innovation out of, you know, companies left and right. And from that, we've now seen these companies dominate their categories. They're global leaders. These are household names, uh, things like Google, Amazon, Microsoft. But, uh, 
Yeah, I think a lot of that was enabled by just sort of the policy was set. And this is why monetary and fiscal policy is such an important piece of the puzzle and something to always keep an eye on is um, they, they really can support or restrict markets based on the policies that they're setting. And we saw that post-GFC, and we saw that again here post-pandemic. Uh, so, um, you know, there's, there's a few different things we could get into, whether it's expansion of the money supply, the balance sheet that, uh, I mean, when you look at actually, it's interesting, if you just focus right there on the balance sheet of the Fed, over a course of about a 100-year period leading into the global financial crisis, the balance sheet itself was very steady. Um, I don't have the exact figures in front of me, but it really just kind of grew very slowly through time. And if you uh, look at a long-scale, uh, a long-term chart of the, the Fed's balance sheet, you can really see two massive spikes in its entire data series. And it's, it's right at the GFC, and then it's right again at the at the pandemic. So they realized that uh, to essentially save us from a massive global depression, really was both scenarios would have set us into. It was you know un unloading that balance sheet, allowing them to pump liquidity in the system, keep the, the, the actual plumbing going while you know we reset all sorts of bad actors, bad companies, valuations that perhaps had gotten stretched. Uh, so just allowing the Fed to sort of be that last lender, the invisible hand of the market. And, uh, yeah, it's, I'd, I'd encourage the, the listeners here to pull up a chart, you know, from Fred or wherever you can get balance sheet data on the Fed and just look at a long-term trend of the – their balance sheet, and you'll see just these crazy spikes around the GFC, and then again at, at the uh, the pandemic. Yeah, exactly. And I think at around sixty or or maybe even seventy percent of the total money supply that's in circulation right now has been printed within the past couple years, um, just because of you know, like you said, just kind of the, the shift in the monetary policy. So, I mean, do you think that because of you know the way things, I guess, played out in two thousand eight, that kind of gave you know, I guess the Fed a little bit more confidence uh, to, to use that tool and use that lever, even though it hasn't really been, I guess, used as drastically as it has in the past, you know, in this, I guess, COVID crash, so to speak. Um, so do you think that that's part of the reason why maybe they, they did it such drastically and, and so quickly is ma making that decision just strictly because of, you know, I guess the situation in 2008? Well, yeah, I mean, I think when you put yourself in the mo I mean, hindsight, you always have the benefit of hindsight, and it's 2020, as we know. Uh, but in the moment, when you really start to think about where things were in late 2008, and then if, again, you start to think about where markets were in March of uh, 2020, things seem to really be falling off the rails quickly. and Markets are a finicky thing. They really thrive on confidence. Um, I know that sounds pretty simple and, and silly, but when you when you when you when confidence is destroyed, really the whole system sort of fails. Lenders won't put money 
out into projects that they should be supporting, whether that's homes or business, local businesses, you know, commercial lenders freeze up, the whole liquidity dries up, you have counterparty risk. Uh, so when you, when you remove confidence out of the system, it can have all sorts of unintended knock-on effects. And I think by, again, stepping in with the, you know, the AAA credit rating that they have, the balance sheet that they have, you know, being the fiat currency, the Federal Reserve really is arguably the most, and is the most powerful market participant out there. So um, I think that, you know, using your word confidence, I think that's an important part of, you know, what they instill in markets. So again, when you put yourself back in time without the benefit of hindsight, and you start to see, you know, in 2008, these massive investment banks that had been around for over 100 years, uh, or in, in this situation, a health crisis, which is what it was, uh, we had never really dealt with before. And, you know, you take a global economy that's chugging along, and at that time it was performing quite nicely, things were healthy, uh, and, and you're, you're asking the global economy to slam on the brakes and people to stay home, shutting down all manufacturing. Uh, there are, again, you're shaking confidence out of the system, and you're now opening sort of this wide cone where the range of outcomes are, are vast and, and, quite frankly, unknown entirely. So I think you have to set policy the best you can with, you know, the information that's available. And I think one thing that they had realized from 2008 into um, using their tools this time in the pandemic is act swiftly and act, you know, with, you know, bring all the tools, open, open the checkbook. Um, let's not, let's not play around here. We, we, we really aren't sure as to what this, you know, at the time, we didn't really even know much about the virus, how transmissible it was, how many people would be infected, what kind of numbers on deaths we would see, how long it would stick around. Um, so I think it was more just a, perhaps an overreaction to keep markets functioning properly so that, um, you know, we weren't we weren't going to set ourselves into a tailspin and some sort of years long depression. Yeah, but it, I mean, it is kind of an interesting time right now too. And and you know, like you said, you can always play hindsight's twenty twenty and all that kind of stuff. And we don't really have that benefit of the doubt, obviously, in the moment or that benefit in the moment. Um, but now it seems like the Fed is kind of you know maybe trying to catch up by. Know, raising interest rates, we've had, you know, massive amounts of inflation, you know, it seems like every month, people are really anticipating the CPI print. And, you know, whatever it comes out as it whether it beats expectations or misses expectations, the market reacts pretty significantly. And, uh, you know, we're, we're recording this today on the uh, 13th, and the CPI print came out this morning. <laughs> Beating, uh, beating expectations by 0.2%, but it was still, you know, 7.1% year over year. Um, so, you know, I guess, how do you view how the market's reacting in these drastic swings, even though, you know, inflation's still over 7% uh, this past year? Yeah, no, I, uh, 
we couldn't be recording at a, at a more interesting time. We have, as you noted, the CPI number that dropped this morning. Tomorrow we get another Fed rate hike. Uh, these are some pretty major macro and monetary policy decisions we close out the year here. So um, no shortage of things to sort of sift through. But on the inflation, um, you know, traders didn't really think the latest inflation print would come in hot this morning. We saw markets run up a little bit yesterday. Uh, but yeah, uh, consumer price index cooled again in November. We had the headline print fall for the, I believe this is the fifth straight month. So now we're at 7.1 year on year, which is actually down from the recent cyclical high in June, which was 9.1. So definitely we've seen uh, quite a bit of improvement in that headline number. 7.1 to your point isn't anything to ring the register about, but we were at nine could have been trending towards 10 or 11. So just to see this reversal, we'll see if it sticks. Um, the path ahead is likely bumpy and will be uh, some numbers higher than expect expectations, some being a little bit lower. But I think this is really, really encouraging to see on the headline number, essentially five straight sequential uh, you know, months in which inflation is dropping, you know, up one, 0.1% month over month, that's encouraging. Uh, so, I mean, I think, like I said, these are steps in the right direction. We're, we're far from the Fed's stated mandate of 2%. Um, and what's interesting about the 2%, I was actually at a, uh, uh, a wealth uh, management, uh, it was called a festival, not a conference, the Future Proof Wealth Festival back in September in Huntington Beach. And one of the main speakers there was Jeffrey Gunlock. And his uh, whole thing, he, he was the keynote speaker. He spoke for about 20 minutes. He was trying to draw there was how the Fed is just oversteering in this type of environment. Uh, they had to cut rates all the way down to zero. They held them there for obviously too long that we know now. And now they're raising rates is faster than any time in history other than like the early 80s. Um, pretty much since March, we've gone from zero to over four in pretty much the blink of an eye. And I think what Jeffrey Dunlock was saying is, you know, once we raise these rates to really stomp inflation out, which is really the primary goal here, is we then are concerned about having rates that are too high potentially putting the economy into a recession, in which case the Fed would then have to, you know, shortly thereafter start cutting rates. Um, so all of this happening in a two or three year period where you're, you're, you're just, you're changing interest rates. Uh, and if you talk to any sort of bond trader out there, a few conversations I seem to be having, the, you know, the, the volatility that we've seen at rate markets is just unprecedented. Is you know, the word that sort of keeps coming up. Uh, but again, Gunlock was basically saying that you have, you have the Fed just oversteering this economy. They're doing the best that they can, but they're looking at inflation, you know, through the rearview mirror. They're, they're poly the, the, the tools that they use are blunt. They take, you know, they, they, it takes a while to affect the system. Policy we know works on a lag. 
Gunlock was then joking, you know, how do we just magically safely land this airplane down back to 2%? You know, what happens if we stay at 3, 3.5%? Three what if we, you know, crush things so much that we actually end up in a, in a deflationary environment? Just landing perfectly at 2 is just some sort of magical fantasy that won't likely take place. What will likely end up happening is we will, at least our expectation, is we're going to sort of stop in the 3 to 3.5% three range, which actually wouldn't even be all that damaging. If you think about where inflation had been for the last 20 years, we are well under the 2% mandate that the Fed seeks. So if we have some years where we're above trend versus a bunch of years where we're below trend, Again, you're looking long-term at these inflation targets. Uh, I think seeing some sort of price growth is, is okay. I, I, you know, for, for all those years, 2010 to 2020, where inflation was essentially almost nothing, um, the Fed had, had commented publicly that they were trying to get a little bit more inflationary prices, prices to rise, and they, they, they really couldn't. So, Unfortunately, it took a global pandemic to really create a, uh, you know, a both the supply and demand side, uh, you know, spike in prices. But I think if we can get, uh, you know, these numbers down into the three, three and a half range, uh, I think we'll be, we'll be okay. And who knows where interest rates will be at that point. We might end up having to cut just to get all the way down there. So time will tell. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like you said, it seems like the Fed is kind of, you know, aggressively raising those rates right now. You know, we've we, we've never seen it at a pace like this before. Seventy five basis uh, point hikes you know, kind of continually. But Jerome Powell's kind of hinted, I guess, a little bit at, at taking the foot, not necessarily off the gas, but, you know, easing up a little bit. Um, and, you know, kind of the sentiment around financial Twitter and, and everything like that just seems like they're they're just screaming for a pivot at this point. And, you know, I, I don't really I, I've heard of various definitions of pivot. Some just believe it's stop hiking rates. Some believes it's actually pulling back. Um, so, you know, I guess seeing that we've uh, maybe we have peaked uh, in June, we'll, we'll probably know maybe in, in another year or so. But it seems like at this point, it, it seems like it's kind of going back down uh, according to like the CPI numbers. So how do you see the, the Fed, I guess, kind of playing this all out? And, uh, you know, do you kind of see this? Uh, I mean, I guess if the Fed keeps being very aggressive, you know, maybe they just ease to 50 point basis hikes. It seems like, you know, the, the U.S. might be best suited, uh, but it seems like, you know, globally, it might send, you know, other, uh, you know, kind of uh, markets and everything else and, into somewhat of a recession or even a depression as well. So, um, you know, I guess it seems like Jerome Powell has all this power and he's kind of pulling these strings. But, um, you know, it seems like everybody's kind of hanging on his words. So how do you see it playing out? And uh, yeah, what, what I guess is what is your outlook for, you know, maybe the 2023 is 24? Sure. Lots of tackle there. Um, I mean, I think the I think what the Fed at this point is probably most closely watching is the labor market. Um, there, were, there, there's various ways to look at inflation. There's different categories, different markets. Um, 
they seem to have taken care of a, a lot of the tr sort of transitory goods type inflation that was so prevalent in 2021 and then early parts of 2022. The, the mortgage market, which is, you know, the largest borrowing market here in the United States and in, in the world. Uh, January 2021, I think the low watermark on like the national mortgage rate was somewhere in like 2627. Just a few weeks ago, the standard 30-year fixed was quoted over seven. So right there, just in the space of less than two years, you completely crushed all of the crazy inflation that we were seeing in the housing market. You know, those anecdotal stories you'd hear about your neighbor next door selling his house to someone, you know, sight unseen, not even with any sort of, um, you know, inspection. A lot of that stuff has been, you know, moved out of the market. That's what will happen when you take rates from sub three to over seven in really the blink of an eye. So the housing market, and, and then again, when you look at new home sales, existing home sales, mortgage applications, cancellations, all of that data is showing in real time and has been for half a year now at least that the housing market is slowing. So that's that was sort of one, I think, goal that they wouldn't publicly state. Uh, but there's, there's, they're seeing those results, so you could almost consider that a check mark. And I think the, the center frontier that they were really trying to, to, to contain was and is the labor market. The labor market, the, the, you know, the month-over-month -month wage gains that we're seeing, they're, you know, they're not quite staying at the level of inflation, but as inflation comes down, those wage gains are sticky. Just think about your back office person at a pharmaceutical company that was maybe making $75,000 in 2020, and they were either looking for new opportunities or to retain talent. These corporations, you know, offered a 5% bump, 7% bump. You know, once inflation comes down, the, the company then can't go to that same employee saying, oh, you know, we solved inflation, that whole, you know, that 7% bump that we got last year, we're going to claw that back. That, that's just not how, you know, the labor market works. That's not how employers deal with their employees. So those, those job gains that we've seen are sticky, and that's, that's hard to, to sort of stamp out when we have, you know, as tight a labor market as we have, and it's hard to find workers. Uh, so the late, I think the labor market is really the last major frontier that the Fed is really trying to quell in terms of overheating. But when you have uh, an unemployment rate sub 4%, you know, we're adding somewhere in the neighborhood of three or 400,000 jobs on average for the entire year. These are, this is a strong labor market. This is why I continually to pound the table that we're just not in recession despite having two negative quarters of growth, GDP growth, in the first and second year, you know, by textbook definition, that would sort of define your recession. We'll see what the NBER the actual governing body who sort of made that decision. They'll make that probably in the months and years to come. Uh, 
But no, I, I think when you have this strong of a labor market, I think this is really where the Fed is really still keeping their their attention and trying to sort of see some 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 easing in that. So how long does that take? We don't know, but what we'll likely end up seeing is you'll start to see it in the in the weekly jobless claims, which will then spill over continuing jobless claims. Um, you'll see that in the month-over-month -month wage gains. You'll start to see these fractures, and we've seen it in tech. Unfortunately, tech is just such a small sliver of the of the labor market. So, you know, while it's crazy to think that something like Facebook might lay off 10, 20,000 jobs, and yes, those are real people getting laid off, but we're we're just not seeing it in the more worker-intensive industries, you know, for example, like manufacturing, which act, um, is, is one area that we did see some softening in the data in the last month or two, but, um, you know, really to get that unemployment number up, which is a terrible thing to do, we have to start laying people off, but that is one way to sort of slow down an economy. So I, I think the Fed is going to be fo laser focused on that. I don't think that comes any, I don't think any softening comes in the next month or two or even three. So we're likely seeing a economy that still is performing strongly uh, into the first half of next year. We'll see where earnings come in. I, I would categorize the second and third quarters as you know better than fear is what I would classify that. If you strip out energy. You have earnings essentially flat or slightly negative, so it's nice to see a renaissance here from earn, uh, from the earnings of these energy companies. But that's still such a small piece. The earn, uh, energy sector is only five percent of the S and P, so that's not enough really to carry the torch forward. So hey, we'll see where earnings come in uh, early next year. I think if the earnings picture really weakens. Then we're sort of in a interesting position where you could really see a deeper risk. And I think what the market is pricing in at this point, um, generally speaking, people like to see 15, 20% drop in earnings. We haven't even come close to that yet. So I think that would be like the next shoe to drop where you would then see markets really like down and, and undercut the October lows that we saw from the S&P. Um, so do do we get there? It just depends, really. I think on the corporate earnings cycle. I think corporate earnings really ultimately underpin the the stock market itself. So um, I think my forecast really for 2023 would be a volatile first half. I don't think today's inflation data changes really that narrative. I think the as long as the Fed remains hawkish, they're you know, raising rates, they might do it at a slower pace, but, you know, higher for longer now is sort of the new the new message. Uh, I mean, I think that still puts sort of a ceiling on where stocks can go because we just don't know where that terminal rate is. And this isn't even getting into the conversation of a pivot, as you had sort of said, you know, how do, how do we define a pivot? Many people can define it all sorts of different ways. So it, it sort of means whatever it means to that specific person. But what a pivot would at least mean in this context would be just to stop raising rates. We, we want to know where the terminal rate is. Is that going to be 
somewhere in the high fours. I think I saw the market pricing, uh, you know, earlier this morning that the terminal rate is going to be somewhere probably in the low five range. And, um, you know, from where we are now, that's only a couple more rate hikes and softball rate hikes, 25.50 versus, you know, these supersized 75 that we've seen four straight months. So uh, I, would, I would say, you know, succinctly, volatile first half, keep an eye on where the corporate earnings cycle is. If we see a major degradation there, we could be in some real trouble in terms of where stocks and, you know, the indices are. If we can get through sort of these better than feared or better than expected results, and we sort of just find, um, you know, the I think the Fed can slowly start to ease and moderate their policy, moderate their stance. We'll have a clear understanding of where that terminal rate might be. It, you know, if inflation doesn't, you know, all of a sudden skyrocket into six, seven, eight percent area, I know that that's a lot of ifs. But those are those are possible. Those are decent probabilities that um, could be a, a tumultuous first half turning into perhaps some upside, uh, you know, in the back half. We'll see. Couple ifs there. Yeah, and I mean, I it, it's tough to make a prediction, so I put you kind of on the spot there. So I get it. Um, but there is a you know there is a lot of you know ifs, and uh, you know we don't really know how the Fed's going to react, especially with a lot of unknowns here in, in the market. So uh, I do think it's, a, you know, it's a really interesting time to kind of talk about all this stuff, especially with all these you know, question marks going forward and kind of, you know, that's just stuff that we've never really seen. Um, so, you know, with that note, do you, I, I mean, we kind of brought it up earlier about the value investing principles, how we were just kind of seeing absolutely insane, you know, PE ratios and what have you. Um, do you kind of see that, I guess, reverting back to, to maybe, uh, you know, some of the, the pre, I guess, pre 2008 times where it was, you know, I guess uh, value investing kind of those principles were holding true and, uh, you know, it, the market made a little bit more sense on that note. Or do you still like I mean, I know you kind of mentioned the volatility. You still think it'll be crazy. But, you know, I, I guess future outlook. Do you think uh, if the Fed decides to, you know, maybe not get back to the the low rates of basically zero that they had for the that decade in between 2008 and COVID, um, and they kind of keep it, I don't know, at some terminal rate. Do you think that those principles will kind of make make for a comeback? Because, uh, I mean, personally, that's that's somewhat of my theory is that, you know, maybe that, that'll kind of start to make a reversion back. Um, but I'd love to hear where you stand on it. Yeah, so just sort of stepping back, you have a 25-year average on the S&P, the forward multiple for the PE, you have at 16.8. Right now we're at 17.6, so we're slightly above that average. I know talking as strategists would like to see that number get knocked a lot lower. Um, I think we were about 15 on the low end, but to get one standard deviation below that 25-year average, you have to get down all the way down to like 13 and a half. So, like I said, sort of in my heavily caveated sort of outlook for 2023, a bunch of those ifs, one of those ifs being corporate earnings. I think if you do actually see major deterioration there, you could, that's again, 
likely see that multiple get knocked down to maybe one standard deviation cheap, which is where we never got despite all of these risks that have faced the market in 2022. Um, but no, I mean, I think, I think it's nice to see valuations not so stretched. You know, the 2022, sorry, the, the 22 multiple that we had at the end of last year was clearly overstretched on the upside. We needed some sort of correction. Uh, you know, when you raise rates from zero to four and a half percent in the space of six months, <laughs> you will get a major correction in markets. You'll see holes compress. So these are all good things. Um, I mean, I think it's it's nice to see sort of a, a renaissance in these value type principles, as you as you mentioned. It's nice to see like a return to cash flows meaning something and mattering. Um, now you can get that, uh, you know, from bonds for the first time in a long time. We went from Tina over the last 10, 12 years where there was no alternative really to stocks to, uh, you know, now they're coming up with all sorts of different uh, acronyms, but uh, Taro is one of them. You know, there are reasonable alternatives. You can actually make money on cash now. You're money market might be paying three and a half percent. Your two-year treasury is going to be paying in the low fours. You can actually get paid on some yield. So for certain investors, that's quite attractive for those that are in retirement or that are a little bit more risk averse. Bonds can actually pay you something. This is, this is wonderful. Uh, but again, I think some of this behavior that we saw late cycle was just uh, it was it was excessive it was euphoric you know when you when you look at sort of behavioral finance the charts of where you are emotionally in the cycle we were way stretched to the upside so I think this sort of major reset while it's super painful to to experience in the moment if you have a little bit longer of a time horizon your prospective returns now going forward are so much better. Uh, you know, you've seen major resets in all sorts of different asset classes. As I said, it's painful to go through. You have the S&P down 15.5% uh, at the time we're taping. You got the NASDAQ. That's just been absolutely crushed. That's down 28. Um, you know, you have the bonds. Where are bonds at your day? Bonds are down. You have the Barclays, the Bloomberg Barclays aggregate down almost 14%. You know, you're setting up for potentially the worst year in a 60-40 history. Uh, that's not hyperbole either. Just go go and look at the data. So these are uncharacteristic returns. They're terrible returns. You know, we talk with our clients every day about how unusual this is. Um, you know, part of the reason why you have bonds in the portfolio is you know, you get the income, which is great, but you also get ballast. You get these risk-off environments and stocks that can be quite punishing and damaging for longer-term returns. So you sort of hope to hang your hat on, on fixed income. And uh, this year, you know, when bonds are down, as I just said, 13 14%, there's, it's been ugly for, for a multi-asset class portfolio. So there's really been nowhere to hide. Uh, you know, energy is been in commodities have been sort of loan standouts uh, and that's a sort of an interesting conversation we can get into too the decoupling between oil prices which are now negative on the year and energy which is still ripping uh, up 60 70 percent on the year 
But, um, no, I mean, I think getting back to these long-term valuation trends where we're much more in line, I think, is just healthy for the market going forward. So these, these resets, while they're super painful in the moment, I think uh, they're, they're, they're just they're great opportunities for longer-term investors. Uh, just getting to those points can be, can be painful. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's definitely been a lot of pain in the market to this year, to say the least. But I do think that there is some interesting sectors out there that, you know, you brought up energy and that there might be some other ones. You know, we've had people on previous podcasts talk about defense and and some other, uh, you know, maybe some interesting uh, sectors, industries, what have you, that they're kind of looking for for maybe a bright spot, even though the overall, you know, market has been down. So what are a couple sectors that you have your eye on? And, uh, you know, why do you like those uh, with the potential of, you know, I guess, a recession and what have you? Yeah. So energy obviously has been one tremendous source of not only absolute strength, but of course, relative strength as well. Uh, so that's an area that we, we've really liked. Uh, to sort of essentially hide where everything else is just um, selling down. But you, you see these defensive sort of counter-cyclical type names that have, um, you know, really shown their weight this year. And unfortunately, it's coming from some of the smaller segments of, you know, if you're looking at like the S&P, where again, like the, uh, the energy sector is only 5% weighting. Uh, and that's up 57% year-to-date. I'm looking at industrials, which is, I think, only about a 2% slug of the S&P. That's down about three, uh, that's down on the year about 3.5%. Uh, you know, financials are pretty interesting now that we are in a right, uh, higher rate environment and that interest margin on some of these balance sheets for banks should improve. Uh, I think uh, consumer staples, that's always sort of an area in this type of environment. So, I mean, I think you kind of go by certain playbooks that have worked in the past. These uh, certain certain sectors that should hold up reasonably well if we get into some sort of recession. Um, you know, certain areas aren't going to perform as better as, as strongly than others. Uh, just sort of how we manage client money. Again, we're not um, going crazy on sector bets and with super short-term time horizons. We try to keep a focus more on longer term. So uh, we're not doing as much in terms of like nuanced sector type positioning, but we have taken on some energy exposure early this year, which has been wonderful. Um, I mean, it was the strongest performer last year. It's going to be the stronger reform this year. Perhaps we're in the midst of a uh, commodities or energy super cycle. We'll see. Um, you know, definitely some, some headline risk for energy trades as it pertains to the Ukraine-Russia conflict that seemingly is not going away. And uh, Putin will seemingly not just give up and, and concede any sort of defeat, dependent, you know, irrespective of what's going on on the ground. Um, but no, longer-term supply dynamics, I think, really favor that. We're just, you know, we have rampant demand uh, for this basic commodity. It's 
it's put into everything in, in the economy, you know, for, you know, think of something, it, some sort of polymer that will revert, uh, ultimately come back to oil. It's in everything that we use in, in, in everyday life. So the demand piece will always be there. And as we know, we are horribly undersupplied. Um, and at, at some point here in the, in the coming months, as the, uh, as the president and his, his, uh, his cabinet has drawn down significantly on these SPR reserves, there's going to be another major buyer in the market. You know, think about the Fed with buying treasuries and mortgages for all these number of years. You're now going to have the, the, our government come in and be a pretty significant buyer of oil um, but, you know, they got what they needed. They especially had the, the midterms, not to get into politics here, but they did knock oil all the way down. Um, I think, as I mentioned earlier, it's negative on the year, despite all of these crazy headline risks that we've seen. So the energy trade is definitely probably maybe even getting almost overcrowded at this point, but that's definitely one area for, you know, people to look at. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I definitely echo that sentiment as well. And I think, uh, you know, I actually had Dr. Anas Alhaji on, on a Twitter spaces and I put it out on the audio as well. And he kind of went into the ins and outs of that um, with the recent oil and, and OPEC and Russia EU sanctions and everything like that. So I think that's definitely an interesting sector to kind of keep your eye on. But, uh, you know, you've been better, very generous with your time. So I really appreciate you coming on the pod. And uh, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you and where, what you got going on? Yeah, awesome. No, it's, uh, thank you for having me here. I, uh, you know, it's fun to talk markets. And when you got, I mean, we didn't even get into a whole host of things. We didn't even get into Twitter, what's, that, what's going on there. We got crypto. We got the new CEO of FTX testifying. We had Sam bankman fried arrested last night. Uh, you know, we haven't even got into all the Wall Street calls for 2023 are coming out, which that in itself is always sort of an interesting exercise, which ultimately sort of means nothing because the estimates are always way off. Uh, no, I appreciate you having me on here. Uh, you can find Sandbox. Uh, that's our RIA, uh, Sandbox Financial Partners. Just Google Sandbox Financial Partners. You can find us there. I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Blake Millard CFA, and um, we also write a daily newsletter on Substack called the Sandbox Daily. We write Monday through Friday with um, sort of a narrative on what is driving markets either that day or that week, that month, topical. Um, you know, we cover stocks, bonds, micro, macro, micro. Um, you know, markets here in the United States, abroad, crypto, technical analysis, we sort of try to cover it all so that, you know, when you read our Substack Monday through Friday or even over the course of a couple of weeks, you, you feel like you have a really good handle as to what's driving markets. Uh, you know, there's no shortage of content out there, so we appreciate anyone who'd be willing to check out the Sandbox Daily on Substack. Yeah, for sure. And and like you said, there's really no shortage of topics here right now, but I want to be uh, you know generous with your time. So I think the audience is really going to enjoy this and we'll probably have to have you back on then to uh, maybe take awesome. a deeper dive after, uh, you know, after all this kind of settles with this SBF FTX kind of 
scandal and stuff like that. But everybody yeah, we'll goes. Have to see, we'll have to see where uh, Michigan goes and uh, and in the national championship. And we always talk Cubs, so no shortage of things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll have you back on if Michigan wins the national championship. You'll be smoking a Love celebratory it. cigar, popping some champagne, doing all that. So, Blake, thanks look so much, and uh, I look forward to having you back on. Awesome. Thanks, Brandon.